We need to re-educate our doctors. We need to re-educate our parents. We need to re-educate our children. And we need to stop treating these victims like they're pariahs. A lot of times it happens by accident. It might just be an innocent, you know, 17-year-old football player that gets hurt and breaks a collarbone, goes to the emergency room and, you know, ends up on these drugs. And, and there's not always enough education that it's highly addictive. And sometimes their, their parent may not realize that just after a couple of days taking this drug, they may get heavily addicted to it. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network, and our calendar says it's a Chinese Happy New Year, so Happy New Year. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court, and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. According to the Center for Disease Control, on average, 130 Americans die every day from an opioid overdose. Right now, inside a Massachusetts federal courtroom, the Attorney General Mara Healy is up against pharmaceutical giant Purdue Pharma, maker of the controversial drug OxyContin, and its owners, the Sackler family. In the case titled Commonwealth versus Purdue Pharma LP, the suit alleges that the Sackler family benefited financially by allegedly pushing addictive and deadly painkillers to doctors and patients while reaping more than $4 billion in profits over the course of a decade from opioids, and all while contributing to the deadly opioid epidemic and impacting thousands nationwide. A spokesman from Purdue responded to the suit by stating, Massachusetts seeks to publicly vilify Purdue, its executives, employees, and directors, while unfairly undermining the important work we have taken to address the opioid crisis by taking out of context snippets from tens of millions of documents and grossly distorting their meaning. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at the opioid epidemic, the impact litigation against Big Pharma, including the Commonwealth versus Purdue Pharma case, what's being done to assist victims of opioid addiction and their families, and how those that are impacted can get help legally and personally. And to do that, we've got a great lineup of guests today. Here to discuss today's topic is Jonathan Novak. He's an attorney from the Fears Nachawati firm, where he used his background as a former U.S. attorney at the Department of Justice in the Drug Enforcement Administration as a litigator to advise multiple clients in multiple areas, including opioid and mass tort litigation. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. And our next guest is Joanne Peterson. She is the founder and executive director of Learn to Cope. That's a nonprofit peer-led support network that she started in 2004. Joanne's journey started as a young girl with siblings experiencing issues with mental illness and addiction. Years later, when Joanne discovered that her own son's experimentation with prescription drugs led to an opioid addiction, she was motivated and empowered to use her voice to bring about change. And welcome to the show, Joanne. Thank you very much for having me. 
Well, Joanne, you have you know some pretty personal experience here. If you would mind, give our listeners a bit of a background about what is going on uh, inside the the actual opioid addiction problem. Well, this has been going on for many years. You know, we're on our fifteenth year watching people lose their lives and families lose spouses, children, grandchildren, grandparents raising grandchildren today, and and you know legitimate patients as well um, that started off with an injury and ended up either dead or or with a a terrible existence in life. So it's just, it's been a problem for many, many years. So we're just grateful to see it finally being exposed for what it truly is. Jonathan, how does this problem found its way into the courts? How is it being approached from uh, the judiciary standpoint? Well, unfortunately, um, attempts to use the existing regulatory laws began falling short as DEA enforcement actions have dropped off. Um, Right now, we're seeing a massive national effort to hold the manufacturers, distributors, and now the pharmacy retailers uh, responsible for violations of the law. The civil lawsuits are seeking damages under a similar theory to the tobacco litigation, which is to say, primarily public nuisance. Um, However, interestingly, they are also bringing in claims of civil conspiracy and RICO claims, which are the racketeering claims often used against mafia. Um, These cases have been brought in the federal courts as part of a multi-district litigation that is in Ohio right now um, and being run by one judge and thousands of lawyers across the country are participating in the work that's going on uh, in this litigation. Joanne, how is Learn to Cope approaching the problem? Well, what we're here for is, is to take care of the families and get them through the worst days of their lives, whether they're losing loved ones or they're trying to find treatment for loved ones, trying to afford treatment, and just the entire process, which can take an average of seven years for someone to literally find recovery if they're lucky enough to find it. It it rips families apart. It ruins marriages. People lose their homes trying to afford treatment. Um, They take out second mortgages. They you know, they're trying to afford to raise grandchildren when they're at retirement age, or, you know, they may have one child that they're paying for their college tuition, and then they're raising a, a, a toddler, and they may have elderly parents. So what we do is, is really try to pick up the pieces from the disaster that Purdue Farmer caused all those years ago. The, the ripple effect of that is going through generations. So We're also a provider for nasal naloxone for the Department of Public Health here in Massachusetts. So nasal naloxone is an antidote for overdose. It will reverse an overdose. And we literally, we have 25 meetings, chapters across the state that meet weekly. And at every single meeting, Monday through Thursday night, we're we're giving out Narcan. We've had close to, I think, now it's up to about 140 overdose reversals since we started giving it out, out in December of 2011. But that just goes to show, you know, what what's happening here. People are finding their loved ones overdosed in the driveway or, or they wake up in the morning and, and they're deceased in their bed after they've come out of treatment. And, and it's just, I, I could go on and on. It's just a disaster what's happened. And we've had a generation that's really been affected by this. And 
and it'll go on for a long time. We have many orphan children that, you know, in the next 10 years will be, you know, teenagers. So with elderly grandparents trying to raise them. So it stretches out far and wide the the consequences of, of what they did. Now, you say you mentioned you had 25 chapters. You're talking about 25 chapters across Massachusetts. Yes. Uh, what kind of support is available in other states? We actually get calls from other states asking us to help them start chapters. There are other groups around the country, and it's people coming together just trying to help each other and share resources and information. We're very lucky here in Massachusetts to have access to Narcan, but there's many states that they do not, or um, I don't, I think we're the only group in the country that we have parents and facilitators that are trained to give out Narcan. So it's a gap and it's a a need around the country. Um, We're just very fortunate to have been able to come together here and, and we get support from the state of Massachusetts, which is wonderful. Jonathan, you mentioned that the DEA has had a change in its practice in terms of enforcement. What's what's the thinking behind that? I mean, is this not a problem in their view or what, what's going on? That's a question that a lot of people have been asking for a lot of years now. DEA initially was primarily focusing on doctors and pharmacies and pill mills. Their work was shutting down really bad pill mills down in Florida. And what we found was every time we shut down a a bad doctor or a bad pharmacy, another two popped up to fill the void. The market had already been created. We already were in the middle of an addiction epidemic. So the the way that the controlled substance market works in the United States, um, under the, the Controlled Substances Act, you have the manufacturer who makes the pill, and then they are not allowed to sell it directly, so they sell it to a distributor. The distributor ships the pills to a pharmacy, and then the pharmacy fills the prescription written by the doctor. Every one of them has an obligation under the law. Um, The obligations include monitoring and ordering suspicious orders, don't fill prescriptions that aren't for a legitimate medical purpose, very similar. And so using that theory, DEA began to go higher up the food chain. Instead of pharmacies, we started going after distributors. The national distributors for opioids, there are primarily three who own 85% of that market. When we started suing them, we started getting really big record-breaking fines and settlements. Unfortunately, at that time, we started to get new orders from on high not to go after the manufacturers or the distributors anymore. The attorneys that I was working with began leaving DEA to go and work for industries such as Cardinal Health or McKesson. Um, And then management at DEA inexplicably began slowing down enforcement actions. Uh, An enforcement action that, uh, you know, at the end of 2013 was ripe and ready to go and we were going to go issue an immediate suspension order and shut down a bad doctor or a bad pharmacy. Um, or a manufacturer or distributor, when new management came in, they basically said, no, the case law is different now. We're not going to do it that way. Enforcement actions dropped from almost 200 in 2011 down to less than 30 in 2016. There's a lot of questions as to why that would happen. It seems like there's a lot of outside influence. Cardinal Health uh, drafted 
new legislation which took away DEA's regulatory powers, um, and that was passed unanimously. So there are a lot of pieces moving here, but all of them seem to be that the industry doesn't want to be regulated, and they have the power to make it so. Well, if you take this as a comparison to the drug war, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, from 1999 to 2017, 400,000 people died from an overdose involving an opioid. So how do people go about getting these opioid prescriptions, and how do they get a hold of this drug if everybody knows it's such a bad thing? I mean, doctors have to now know about this crisis. What's, what's happening on the, on the practical side of this? Well, it's pretty simple to get an opioid prescription even today. We're still hearing about it. You know, there's more information, of course, about it, but it's still happening. Um, you can have a minor injury and, you know, walk out with a, a prescription with, you know, 30 pills and you can have wisdom teeth removed and, and it's become so highly marketable on the street. Sometimes people would even go and have teeth removed so that they could, you know, get these prescriptions. So, and a lot of times it happens by accident. It might just be an innocent, you know, 17 year old football player that gets hurt and breaks a collarbone, goes to the emergency room and, you know, ends up on these drugs and, and there's not, always enough education that it's highly addictive and sometimes their their parent may not realize that just after a couple of days taking this drug they may get heavily addicted to it so a lot of the families that I've met over the last 15 years it happened that way or young adolescents out there experimenting I know many that were at high school graduation proms or parties and you know, young college students where these prescriptions would be, you know, passed around and they thought that they were just going to party one night and be okay the next day, and that was just not the case. And back in the days when it was the 80-milligram OxyContin pills that had the time release, um, they would wipe off the time release and crush it and snort it. And when you when you removed the time release and snorted an 80-milligram pill, it was basically like snorting straight heroin. And it only takes a couple of days for your body to actually need that so that you're not sick. And it would take a, a you know, a young honor student or a few days to eventually turn to heroin when they couldn't afford the $80 a milligram pill on the streets. So if somebody went and got a prescription for OxyContin and they had 30 pills and can sell them for $80 per pill, then that's highly marketable for drug dealers to get a hold of it. It became a very, very sought-out drug to make money, to addict people, and and just it, it just turned into this huge business on the streets, aside from patients becoming addicted accidentally. Well, we need to take a quick break, and before we move on to our next segment, we'll hear a message from our sponsor and be right back. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice, from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, Clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. 
And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and we are joined by attorney Jonathan Novak from the Fears Nachawati Law Firm and Joanne Peterson, the founder and executive director of Learn to Cope. We've been talking about the opioid epidemic and litigation against Purdue Pharmaceuticals, one of the big pharmas that manufactured opioid addictions. And we've been talking with Joanne about the on the ground day to day situation that's occurring with opioid addictions. Joanne, once uh, kind of a follow up question to where we were right before the break what happens after you're addicted to Oxycontin? Uh, what, is there a recovery program and how willing are people to get into it? That's the hard part about this. There are recovery programs, but one, they can be very expensive. Two, if you're no longer working anymore because you're heavily addicted and your your whole focus becomes how will I get my next pill or how will I get, you know, more of the medication so that I, I can not get sick. So it becomes a 24-hour job just to continue with their addiction and they lose everything. They lose their families. They lose their job. It, it's just, it's heartbreaking, the whole process. And it, it is quite a process because they lose themselves. Um, that's the best way I can really explain it. It takes a long time for the family to get educated, to understand what they're dealing with, to understand the whole continuum of care and the treatment process, how to find it, how to afford it. And, you know, somebody can go into treatment 10, 20 times, and it can take years for them to actually find recovery if, if they're lucky. So it's, it's a very, very hard addiction to recover from and to beat. And once they have this addiction, if they don't work really hard at staying you know, away from the drug, they relapse. And, and relapse happens for years before they it, it took my family member almost four years before he could put one year together, and that was in and out of detox. You know, the family learning, our family learning that the first treatment center was not going to be the last. Also, another issue is, you know, there's a lot of businesses that have popped up in that industry now where there's really fraudulent things happening. You know, in medical insurance, is, there's a lot of fraud that way, there's people that will, will buy a house with five or six bedrooms and call it a treatment center, and, and you know, it's just a, a big, empty house. So, you know, getting the right information, the correct information is very, very hard. Navigating the treatment system, insurance companies, it's extremely difficult. And when you're heavily addicted to these opiates, you're not functioning like you used to. It can take a person that had a very, you know, high-level position as, you know, it happens to attorneys, it happens to medical professionals, it happens to to anybody. And once it does, it's very hard to get their life back. And oftentimes they can never go back to what they lived before. So it's a, it's a really heartbreaking situation. So we're there really to help people get through it. It sounds terrible. Jonathan, as I'm listening to Joanne, the first year torts class is flashing in front of my my memory of, of the theories of, of tort liability for this and the all of the problems associated with it. But I want to talk about that. But in the context of your plaintiffs, I mean, you have, I'm sure, lead plaintiffs and people that are out from the 
addiction crisis so that our plaintiffs suing against this kind of put that into context for us how you translate what joanne has gone through and with her family and her situation and then how that blends into the plaintiffs that you see and what the theories of recovery are absolutely and first and foremost you know my work is doing litigation and hopefully to benefit people like joanne and her program who are out there actually helping on the ground level and helping individuals. I have a brother who suffers from addiction problems here. And every single day of my life, I fear that I'm going to get that phone call. Um, and, you know, when we talk about recovery here, we're talking about money, but we're also talking about how do we get the, the, these plaintiffs right? And how do we get our society right? The theories, you know, we're suing, on behalf of public entities, we sue on behalf of the state of Utah or the city of Santa Fe or Howard County, Maryland. And these are some of my clients. We have clients all over the country. What we're looking to do is similar to the type of thing they did in the tobacco litigation. We want to hold these parties responsible, and then we want them to pay to fix the problem that they deliberately caused. So when we're talking about costs, you can calculate how much Narcan every first responder in every county has to carry and how much they're spending on it. And that's a cost that every one of our clients deserves to recover. Medicaid costs on behalf of a state. But it's more than that. This is not a problem that fixes itself with money. The, thing, the reason we talk about the tobacco litigation is as part of the settlement there, tobacco companies paid for abatement. They paid to get people to stop smoking. They paid to change the marketing and the message. And what we need to do here is we need to provide money to, these, to communities all over the country to fund long-term treatment because 28-day programs do not work for opioid addiction. We need to fund the Narcan that's getting carried by every first responder and police officer in every community in this country which are usually through unfunded mandates, which means the county has to find tax money to pay for that. We also need to re-educate. We need to re-educate doctors who were given completely, just absolutely fabricated misinformation about opioids and their addictive nature, which caused this flood, the blizzard of avalanches, as the Sackler family said. That was what they wanted. They misinformed everyone. We need to re-educate our doctors. We need to re-educate our parents. We need to re-educate our children, and we need to stop treating these victims like they're pariahs. The Sackler family refers to people who are addicted as junkies. These are not junkies. These are victims, and we as a society need to stop blaming them. We need to work with our family members and our communities so that we can heal. And that's what these lawsuits are seeking to do. We're seeking to recover money for the communities so that they can heal themselves. It doesn't make sense for the federal government to dictate what Havard or Grace Maryland does in terms of fixing its own problems. That money should go to Havard or Grace and they should figure out what works in their community. And that's how this is different. That's why we're looking at the tort liability here and because of the nature of what these companies did, the ignoring of federal law and state law the malicious, thoughtless, heartless way that these companies pushed 
opioids, which they knew were addictive, creating a market, not caring, bringing in billions of dollars. We need to hold them accountable. And then we need to start the process of changing everything so that we understand what people have understood for hundreds of years, that opioids are dangerous, that they're addictive, that there's a time and a place for them, but that we are way beyond that now. Jonathan, is it, is it naive to think that one of the obvious solutions is to stop the production of Oxycontin? Yes, for a number of reasons. I wouldn't say naive. It's hopeful. But what we know is there's a time and a place for opioids in general. Cancer, end-of-life cancer pain. Or when you break your leg and they give you two pills to get you through the first night. We need to put science towards looking into pain relief that's not addictive. But we can't also simultaneously can't take away a tool that has been used for generations. There has always been a fear of over prescribing and overusing opioids, but it's also been recognized for as far back as medicine goes that there is a good use. There is a time when that kind of pain relief is useful. Unfortunately, with the advent of the fifth vital sign being pain, uh, we started to believe that opioids were a magical pill with no bad side effects that improved everyone's value of life, um, that we could just keep taking higher and higher dosages uh, because opioid naive people didn't need to start on the lowest dosage. They could jump all the way right up to the 80s or heaven forbid the 160s that were out for a while. There is a time and a place in addition, just as fentanyl originally came in lozenges because it was for patients who had cancer and the pain was so bad they couldn't swallow. So they could take a lozenge and have slow acting pain relief. That's not something that we should be enjoying recreationally. And we need to get out and change that message. But that is something that if I had a loved one who was suffering immensely from cancer pain and couldn't swallow, I would want them to have access to something like that. This gets back to, though, we need to get our doctors and, and our pharmacists to understand time and place, situation in which that's an appropriate uh, remedy. Well, Joanne, you know, let's let's kind of deal with the practical end of this. You know, we, we've talked about the problem, but let's talk about what how we get people on the right solution. You find what advice do you want to give to family members that are going through this and pray that potentially someone listening to the podcast is actually going through it themselves? What's the next step? What do they do? What we like to offer is support, education, resources, and hope. Families really need hope. They need to hear hope and they need to see hope. When I first started to go through this, I, I had gone to a meeting and I, I raised, it took me forever to raise my hand because of the stigma and, you know, the attitude out there that your family members are just junkies. I went to a meeting and I raised my hand finally after we were suffering for so long trying to figure this out on our own. Because the first thing a family member or parent especially does is blame themselves. What did I do wrong? How did this happen? I thought I did everything I could to you know, raise my son or daughter and, and keep them safe and teach them about drugs and alcohol, and then this happens. So when you finally come out and raise your hand and ask for help, 
um, you should get it. And I didn't. It was more, this meeting is not about your son. This meeting is about you. And I said, no, it's about my son. He's 18 and he's going to die. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I was looking through the yellow pages for help. And there was really virtually nothing other than, you know, just let go. There's nothing you could do. And, you know, as a child, when I was a child, I did have a, you know, a brother and a sister with alcoholism and mental health issues. And it was the same thing. No one would talk about it. It was sort of the hidden secret because everybody was afraid of what someone would think about them. And I said, I need to change things. So I wanted to have a place where I would be educated on addiction and how does it happen? How do you find treatment for it? What is treatment? What does it look like? How do you pay for it? And so at our chapters, you can walk into one of our Learn to Cope chapters and there's 60 to 80 people in those rooms every week. That's how large this issue is. So what we try to do is add education for the families. Um, So one, they can start to heal and not blame themselves. Two, they can take action because they're understanding what's happening to their loved one and it takes over their brain. It takes over their body. So you have to literally step in sometimes and find that information for them and try to learn how to motivate them to go to treatment, which was, is not an easy thing to do. And, you know, you go to bed at night with your pocketbook under your pillow because they need money in order to support this habit. And, What ends up happening is, you know, somebody that worked every day and got A's in school and graduated and went to their first year of college, a year later after this, they're stealing jewelry and yard tools out of the garage and bringing it to pawn shops so that they can, you know, continue to feel normal because they're so heavily addicted and they get so sick without it. So the entire family needs education. Joanne, how can our listeners reach out to you if they'd like to get this kind of help? Sure. Uh, we have a website. It's learn. It's www.learn, the number two, cope.org. And you can click on contact us and find us that way, or you can call our office. We also have on our website a private family forum that family members can join that. There's over 10,000 families on it privately, anonymously where you can get help any day of the week and just just to talk to another family member or spouse and just get support, resources, and, and help. Great. That's fantastic. Our favorite people are people in recovery because they give us hope. They They show us that people can get better, but we let people know right away that this is not going to happen overnight. It's It'll be a long road, but you're not going to go down that road alone. Thank you. That's a wonderful resource. Thank you for that. Jonathan, I'd like to turn it over to you to wrap up with your final thoughts and your contact information for our listeners, if you please. I am part of a group of attorneys that are going after the corporations who caused this opioid crisis. They caused it deliberately. They've made billions of dollars off of it. And in my work at DEA, one thing that I found every single time is that these companies do not have any interest in altruism. They are not going to do what's right. And we need to make them do that for everyone out there. You need to be angry. You need to be informed and you need to take action. And whether that's 
uh, on an individual level and going out and working in your community, or whether that's making sure that your your representatives, that your politicians know that you want them to take action against these companies. Everyone needs to become educated on how we got here and how we can heal. Um, and with that said, I really, again, want to thank Joanne for the work that she's doing for people out there who feel desperate and alone dealing with the addictions of a loved one. This is not where we should be, and our generation needs to fight to get everything back in order. If anyone is interested in reaching out, you can contact me through Twitter. It's at JPNovakESQ, or you can email me at J-N-O-V-A-K at FNLawFirm.com. Great, Jonathan. Thank you very much. And Joanne, really very much appreciate your participation in our podcast today. And it looks like we've now reached the end of our program. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. You can join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.